So a, a tour bus full of pastors, this is sort of how like uh, a lot of jokes begin, right? <laughs> a tour bus full of pastors arrived at this mountain just before the gates were about to close. So if we wanted to hike to the top of this hill, we had about 15 minutes to do it before the gates would be closed. Um, we didn't have to go to the top. Nobody was forcing anyone to even begin this hike. But immediately, I started running. If I was going to accomplish anything in life, it was going to be getting to the top of this mountain. Regardless of age or health, you could see almost every other pastor there desperately doing the same thing, just trying to get onto the mountain. So why were all of these pastors so determined to make it up this hill? I mean, did Jesus hike up this hill or something? No. Was it a famous hill in the Bible? No, not that either. This hill felt so much more personal to us. This was the hill that inspired the Greek myth about Sisyphus. Have you heard of this? In the Iliad, Sisyphus is described as the most cunning of men. Not once, but twice he died, descended into the underworld where he tricked death and was able to return to the land of the living. But his punishment for this trickery was eter an eternal punishment of pushing a rock up a hill, only for that rock to tumble back down to the ground before he got to the top. So he would have to start up over again and again and again for eternity. This was that hill, or at least the hill that inspired this myth, and all of us pastors felt this deep in our soul. This is us. This is our job. Every week we roll this boulder up a hill that we call a sermon. <laughs> but every Sunday that boulder comes crashing back down and on Monday or Tuesday we start all over again pushing this boulder back up the hill until we get to Sunday. Week after week, year after year, we are Sisyphus. So I made it to the top and none of you can take that away from me. <laughs> But, but maybe we all feel this, right? In, in, in all of life, we feel, we have that sense of, of, of life being repetitive in that way or maybe futile. You wake up, you go to school, you have after-school activities, you have homework, you fall asleep, you wake up, you go to school again and again and again. You wake up, you go to work, you come home, you fall asleep again and again and again. Sisyphus. Almost every night in our house, we have dinner, and then about 15, 10 to 15 minutes later, one of our kids yells, I'm hungry, but we just, we, we literally just had Sisyphus, right? Life is, is futile. Do you ever feel that way? Anyone? All the time. You're a teacher. <laughs> so Koheleth, this mysterious character in the Bible, says in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, uh, verses 17 through 24. So, I hated life <laughs> because what was done under the sun was grievous to me for all is smoke and a chasing after wind. I hated all my toil or my work in which I had toiled under the sun seeing that I must leave it to a successor. And who knows whether he or she will be wise or foolish. Yet they will be master of all for which I have toiled 
and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is smoke. It's meaningless. So I turned and I gave my heart up to despair concerning all the toil of my labors under the sun because sometimes one who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave all to be enjoyed by another who did not toil for it. This also is smoke and a great evil. What do mortals get from all the toil and the strain with which they toil under the sun? For all their days are full of pain and their work is a vexation. Even at night their minds do not rest. This is smoke. There is nothing better then for mortals than to eat and drink and find enjoyment in their work. This also I saw is from the hand of God. All right, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, wow, what do we do? We've, we've been looking at Ecclesiastes for a little while, um, and, and, and it's all like this, right? <laughs> like, life is short, life is difficult. What a bummer. But first of all, as we listen to this, poor guy, right? Poor king. This character here in chapter 2 is presumably a king. Poor, rich, and powerful king who can't take all of his riches with him, right? Like that's sort of what he's complaining about. Poor, rich, and powerful king who has enjoyed all the pleasures of life and has discovered that he's still not satisfied. Ah, poor guy. I mean, don't we all feel sorry for people like Elon Musk and Bill Gates, right? Like, we feel really bad for them, right? I mean, Bill Gates has literally been working for years, decades even, with one goal in mind, to give all of his money away to charity. But no matter how hard he tries, he just keeps getting richer and richer. I mean, it's like Sisyphus in reverse. He's trying to get the rock to roll back down the hill, but gravity works differently for people like that, right? Presumably. So what are we supposed to do with this king? With this character, Koheleth, in, in Ecclesiastes? Is this king out of touch with the experiences of normal human beings? Or is there something here that resonates also with every one of us? I'm going to go with yes, like both. <laughs> yes, I know what it's like to wonder uh, about the meaning of life and the meaning of work and to struggle with that. And I, and I know that there is an emptiness that comes from this unending pursuit um, for more and more things, more and more control over life. So there's something here that is real, that feels real and is, is good for us to see. But also, King, while you are inviting us into your own existential crisis, Maybe don't spend all your time talking about how great you are and how rich you are and how much you have and how much you've accomplished and how much wiser you are than everybody else. This king is sort of like a cartoon character who is ridiculous. So Reverend Dr. Lisa Wolf suggests that Ecclesiastes, this character Koheleth in Ecclesiastes, um, is a character. It's, it's, it's almost like they're playing a role, a role that is meant to be ridiculous, that is meant to be cartoon-like, so that we can critique the conventional wisdom that comes in society from those who are primarily in positions of power and privilege. 
You see, the core invitation in this chapter is this, eat, drink, and find enjoyment in work. I mean, aren't we all looking for that? Like, aren't we all trying to figure those basic things out? So how do we do that? And with this cartoon-like character, the, the suggestion is, is don't be like the king, at least in a few ways. For example, the king goes on and on and on about my toil, my work, my accomplishments. But in this same chapter, he boasts about how many slaves he has toiling for him, doing his work for him, making his accomplishments for him. You see, work that is mine and mine alone is not only a heavy weight for us to carry, it's not only a boulder that we have to push up a hill that keeps coming back down, but more often than not, it's an even heavier burden that is placed on other people. While the CEO makes tens of millions of dollars, those creating the products or, or serving the customers are finding it hard to put food on the table so that their family and their friends can eat and drink together. The king complains also about his work, that his work will be, will be passed on to others, to his successor. But, but didn't this king also receive the benefits and the work of the king who came before him? I mean, would he be able to do the work that he is able to do without all that came before him as a king, right? There's really no such thing as my work that is mine alone. Like, that's sort of a pretty big American myth. It's my work. I'm smart. I made it happen. Therefore, I deserve to keep all the benefits. Because we always are connected to one another. We are always connected to one another. Even if I spend hours alone in my office writing this sermon or any other sermon, I have books and conversations. I have a lifetime of relationships and experience and wisdom that comes from you, that comes from others, that comes from generations before me floating around in my head constantly. Like, none of my ideas are original. <laughs> my work is me in relationship with more people than I can imagine. And there is joy in noticing that we are never alone in our toil. We are never alone in our toil. We are always connected to one another in ways that we can't imagine. Now, ha having said that, this doesn't take away from what we bring to our work the way that we invest of ourselves into what we do and what we create. Each week as I roll this particular boulder up the mountain, I'm putting my own thoughts, my own creativity, my own stories into this work, and, and the work is fun and enjoyable um, sometimes, oftentimes, because it's personal, right? Because I'm creating something that is a part of me. Uh, and th this hopefully is how work is supposed to be, is that we're, we're creating something that is a part of us, that, that we've invested in, into our work, our, our volunteer work, our, our parenting, whatever, whatever it might be. The, the king, however, is frustrated that ultimately, death will cause him to lose control over his work. But this is like all of life. Throughout life, don't we lose control of our work as soon as we share it with anyone else, Right? Like, if we share it, I mean, if I just write a sermon and then just keep it in my office and never share it with anyone, then I have control over it, like, even after death. But when we turn in our homework to a teacher to grade it, 
like we've lost all control of our work at that point, right? The greatest struggle of, of being a parent is how we invest so much of ourselves into our kids only for our kids to be their own human beings and for them to make their own decisions. The king can't let go of control, not even in death, but the enjoyment of our work comes from the process of creating something that is a part of us and then letting it go out into the world. Letting go of control of all of the things that we can't control when it comes to the things that we do and the things that we create. We can't control our kids. We can't control necessarily the grade that our teacher wants to give to us or, or how our boss or our colleagues or anyone else responds to the things that we create. Once upon a time, I, I heard a pastor who talked about communion or the Lord's Supper in this way. The Greek term for the Lord's Supper is called the Eucharist, which literally means good grace or, or good gift. It's a gift. This is the meal that Jesus shared with his followers that represented his life work, his self-giving love. Throughout his life, through his death and even in his resurrection, Jesus breaks the bread and pours out the wine and he gives it away. He gives it to his followers. But once the meal is set, once the food is on the table, there is little that Jesus can do to control it. There is little that Jesus tries to do to control it. That isn't necessarily the truth for the church. The church likes to try to still control it. But Jesus gives the meal. And then Judas takes the meal. And then he leaves the table and he betrays Jesus. Peter and most of the other male disciples will, will take the meal, they will enjoy the meal, and then they will leave the table and they will abandon Jesus in his hour of need only later to return. And then there are a few women who are there who receive this gift. They enjoy the meal just like everybody else and they stay with Jesus throughout his time of suffering. You see, Jesus gives his life as a gift and then releases control over what anyone is going to do.